Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fully Booked. My name is Roland Hume and I am joined by the owner and founder of Hidden Gems Books, Craig Touch. And we are back to talk about this crazy business that we're in of self-publishing, advertising, marketing our books and everything like that. And today we have a very special guest who I am super excited to speak to. He is Stefan Edmonds and he is the author of a book called The Eight Crafts of Writing, The Map of Storytelling. And I think that book has some really, really interesting and valuable ideas for authors and writers. So I think it's going to be a great conversation. So good morning, Stefan. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm fine. Well, it is great. I'm very well, thank you. And it's great to have you. And of course, we have the man himself, Craig Touch, owner and founder of Hidden Gems, a writer himself. How are you doing this morning, Craig? I'm doing well. Thanks, uh, Roland. Um, Hi, Stefan. So uh, let's jump into this. I was looking at the the book and, um, you know, the eight crafts of writing that you put together. And, and uh, I was wondering, you know, uh, it, it's really interesting. You know, there's a lot of good information. So I'm just uh, hoping you can sort of, you know, start at the beginning of what sort of, um, you know, made you want to write this book, put it all together. And, uh, you know, you know, the, what's mm-hmm. the background that you have that that made you um, want to take this kind of a project on. Mm. Uh, okay, maybe I quickly introduce myself. Um, sure. My name is Stefan Emons. I'm German, and um, I write about enlightenment or spirituality, if you prefer that term. So I write nonfiction, fiction, and and articles. And I started with nonfiction, but about five years ago. I got interested into uh, fiction writing because I felt um, yeah, nonfiction informs people, but it doesn't really move people. And enlightenment is a transformative process, so you need some, some motivation and inspiration in order to go through that. And I, th- I think stories are better equipped to move people. And uh, I also realized that all ancient spiritual scriptures, most of them are in story form. So, so there must be something to it. So uh, when I ventured into uh, fiction writing, the first books I wrote, they didn't work out yeah, because I didn't have the skill, I didn't have the knowledge, and I was faced with a crisis. Either I, I give it up or I learn, I get seriously into writing. And I decided for the, for the latter so I got seriously into writing, and around you know, three years ago, uh, I had a couple of new books in, in the pipeline that I hope will do better, and I believe that I have a strong grip on the writing craft. And I knew a lot by then, and I had practiced a lot of prose and line-by-line writing, so I was actually convinced that I could publish my books now, and they're, they're going to be successful. And uh, the only thing I still wanted to do to my existing books was to to change the POV from uh, uh, distance third person to uh, limited or deep POV, polish the prose a bit, and then stylize the dialogue. It's very important to have uh, stylized dialogues in in fiction. And for that purpose, I bought the book uh, Dialogue from Robert McKee. And in the... In the opening, it said something like, uh, at that time, I thought, okay, dialogue is a part of prosing. Yeah. So if you can prose, you can write dialogues. It's a stylish thing, more or less. 
But when I read the opening of uh, Dialogue, I read that uh, McHugh wrote something like, uh, um, Dialogue's everything, uh, even narrative, because somebody is telling the story to somebody. So uh, suddenly, part of the whole thing became the whole thing. And in that moment, when you have such a realization, is a moment of chaos in your head, you know. So, but I rebounded from this. Um, but I still had this um, realization that I did not actually have a firm grip on the writing crafts. I've learned a lot and from blogs, from different authors, from books, from courses, but I, I didn't really have the big picture and I didn't have the overview. And there's always was sizzling in the back of my mind, is there something I don't know? Um, is there something I don't understand? Uh, uh, like that. It's like a, you know, this nagging voice that we sometimes get. And um, I wanted to get rid of that voice. So I jumped back uh, I jumped back into learning and tried to find an overview of the writing crafts, uh, but there's none. Yeah, uh, there's no, most of the authors, they specialize in one or two or three crafts. And usually they're either on story outlining or story structure or story experience, which is prose, but there's no uh, overview, no big picture, no map. So I thought, okay, I got to get it for myself then. So I jumped back into studying, into learning, but not to relearn everything because I basically knew it, but to find this overview, uh, the whole, the big picture. And uh, slowly the image of the eight crafts emerged. Yeah? And I pressed on and everything I, I reread and all the other bits and pieces I, I learned anew, I could somehow uh, associate with one of the, eight crafts. So uh, when I was done with that, I was very happy. I had a peace of mind and I wanted to, um, I could continue writing. Yeah. Um, but then I realized that if it was so important for me to have this overview, maybe other authors are interested in that as well. And that made me, made me write the book. I yes. find that. Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead, Craig. No, I was going to just say, you know, it makes it uh, makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of times where people are looking for one uh, help with one specific area of writing. And so they look up uh, a book on that topic. I know I've uh, I have a book on dialogue as well. Not the same one as you. Uh, I think mine was by Orson Scott Card, who is one of my favorite mm -hmm. authors. Um, yeah. And I agree. Like dialogue is, is everything. Right. And a lot of people can't write good dialogue, um, you know. Because of they just think of it as yeah just uh, I should just you know write like I write normally but put quotes around it or you know like it, it has to be you know it has to flow it has to you know sometimes it read out loud so that you can as if you're having that conversation with somebody and say that makes sense but so you know people look up those specific books to help them with the one area um, but a lot of times I think it, it's uh, helpful to have an overview of of everything in one spot so that you don't have to go looking for all these different ones. And then, I mean, sure, you can, once you have that, you can then drill in to, if you yeah. wanted more information, you could go buy a book on one of those crafts, right? But at least, you know, uh, a good overview of all of them. So it's great to have that as uh, one, one reference. Mm. Yep, exactly. 
What really excited me about your book is that you identified like writing as a craft. I think a lot of people think writing is an art and so you can sit down and write how you want to write and the readers will come. But writing is more like being a craftsman. It's like a if you're a carpenter and you make a table, you need the flat surface and the four legs. And as a writer, you need to have these certain elements to make a satisfying story. And you've done a really good job of identifying things that will make a book a pleasurable experience. So it's almost like an instruction manual for how to assemble a book like a master craftsman. Oh, yes, it is. So can you tell us maybe what those eight crafts are? Let's, uh, or, you know, so we have an idea of what, what you focused on there. Uh, but leave yeah. just enough out so people will still buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the book is very thick, so I don't worry about leaving out stuff. Okay, so, so the eight crafts are... Um, uh, big idea, then there's a narrative, there's genre, uh, story outline, uh, characterization, world building, uh, scene structure, and prose. So the the big idea is basically the theme of the story, and it can take on three forms. It can be a, a what if, for example, what if an astronaut is stranded on Mars? That's the what if of the Martian. Or it can be a moral, yeah, the moral of the story that reveals itself at the climax. Or it can be simply a, a story promise. Uh, for example, uh, if people overcome their pride and prejudices, they can find love. That's then the story promise of uh, pride and prejudice. Um, narrative has uh, three elements. There's the author's voice. There is a narrative frame, which is a frame of perspective from which the story is told. For example, epistolary is a narrative frame where a story is told in, in a series of letters. And then there is um, the POV or the person who narrates the story. It can be one person or it can be multiple persons. Nowadays, it's mostly the uh, most of the time the protagonist who tells the story. So genre is, um, yeah, it determines what kind of story is being told. Is it a thriller? Is it a romance? Or is it a, a horror story, etc.? A story outline is what gives the story a structure. And the most famous story outline method is uh, the hero's journey. But there are also others. And I also give my, my own special uh, story outline, which is the adversity cycle. Then we have uh, characterization, which uh, breathes uh, life into the story characters, uh, which has a lot to do uh, with psychology, yeah, that we give the protagonist the right motivation, the right goals, so they don't feel uh, artificial or melodramatic. Then there's world building. Uh, world building has also two aspects. One is the world context, which explains how the world works. In fantasy, that becomes the magic system. And then there's the world setting, which uh, describes how the world looks. The next uh, craft is scene structure, um, which explains how you can uh, structure uh, scenes and how they can arc, and what are the elements and the building blocks of scenes. And uh, then you have prose, which is the line-by-line uh, -line writing, which then weaves the story experience. I find that a really, really fascinating way to look at things because um, 
the certain certain elements like the characterization is so important and some people like mm. overlook them like if you have one character who's really well formed and another character is really well formed and you put them in a what if situation oh, the story yeah. almost writes itself oh yeah yeah remind yeah, and- me some some of those things remind me of that the story circle uh thing that you know, Dan, Dan Harmon's story sequel and all those different things that you have to focus on. It sounds mm. like a lot of those are part of these as well. Mm. Yep. Yeah, part of characterization is, of course, also to design proper uh, character conflict. And uh, there are also uh, tools for that. And if you do that right, as you said, then the story, if you have the right character conflicts, your uh, story writes itself. Yep. Yeah, conflict is key. I mean, that's uh, you can't really have a story without conflict, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a fight or a war, right? Like people think of. Sometimes I think people think of conflict as like how my story isn't a conflict; it's a love story, and they fall in love. There's no conflict there, but there is. Con- no. You know, there's always conflict, right? It's just how you define right. conflict, and it's not always this. It has to be this big thing of conflict. It's you know, it's uh, you know the the. the the people that fell in love have a disagreement and they have a fight, right? Or they, you know, they, or something is holding them back from getting together or whatever, right? There's always mm. conflict. Yep. And, okay. and Yeah, and oh, it can okay. hurt much more if you have a conflict in your home than you have, than if you have a conflict with a stranger or something. One of the things that you said that really resonated with me was how you went back to your fiction and changed the point of view to be first person rather than third person. And in your book, you write about how, you know, the writer gets parachuted into the jungle and gets caught up in the the tree. And so she only has her viewpoint. And that really resonated with me because when I started writing, I was really inspired by James Bond and all the thriller novels, which are all written in third person, um, which it's very easy to get quite confusing with the third person because you in the third person position know things that the character doesn't whereas when you write in first person all you know and all you see is what that character sees which i think just by default makes it a more engaging and interesting story and it sort of narrows your viewpoint it gives you a sharper focus and right away that first thing you said just was a really powerful and strong piece of advice that i know has like transformed my own writing career Okay. So, um, how so? Have you had any um, sort of feedback from authors that have used the you know read the book and and found it useful and and anything or you know have you heard from any authors? You know, sometimes authors reach out and uh, about books like this, and you know, sometimes they don't. But I'm just curious about whether or not you've heard anything from any other um, mm. authors. Uh, yeah, uh, the eight crafts of writing is not only available as a book, but also as a course on the Lawson Writer Academy. And in that course, I interact a lot with uh, other authors. And I got uh, really great feedback, um, not only because there are so many things I can teach them, especially uh, uh, new writers, uh, beginning writers. There are so many things that I, I can put in the course but also uh, the things become much more clearer. Like there, there are so many uh, writing advices on the internet, you know, like uh, sit on the typewriter and bleed, inspire your reader, write for the reader, not for the, for the author, uh, not uh, for yourself. And, uh, you know, find a great character and follow him. 
So there are so many uh, advices which feel inspiring if you look at them one by one, but as a bunch, they become very confusing. Yeah. So when should I be inspiring? Uh, when should I be uh, nasty to my pro protagonist? Um, when should I uh, heed to an advice and when should I not heed to an advice? And you can only gain that type of wisdom if you have the big picture. And I think that's the best, that's the main feedback and the, the most important feedback I get. That suddenly they can uh, uh, tell which advice fits into uh, which situation. I'm not, I think we were talking about it before we even got on the call, but one thing that I took away from you, which is something I had to learn as a writer, is often it's really important to ask yourself these questions before you even start writing the book. I think a lot of writers, when they start off, they write their book and afterwards they're like, how am I going to sell this? How am I going to get readers? Whereas what you do is force a, a writer to think of certain key questions, like what point of view and why? Why am I doing this? What's the engage? How am I going to engage the reader? What's the conflict before you even plot out the book? And I think that just ends up resulting in a in a much more satisfying package. Um, is that something that you've like had? How do people feel about that? Because I know that's frustrating advice for a writer, even though it's the best advice for a writer. Yeah, I mean, maybe uh, short term, they don't like the advice because it stifles. They think it stifles their creativity. But long, long term, they, they really um, appreciate this advice because if you start writing a story, let's say, in, in uh, third person yeah, and, and the story develops as you write and it becomes very dramatic and there are a lot of inter internal movements in the story which you want to convey to the reader and, and then, then uh, three-quarters through the story you realize, oh, I think I better write this in first person. Yeah, because otherwise it's very hard to convey feelings and emotions and, and, and internal crises. And then he has to rewrite the whole thing from, and change it from a third person to first person. And that's a lot of words you throw away and a lot of words you uh, have to rewrite. So um, my recommendation is that um, usually uh, the, uh, a story idea arrives in fragments, like uh, uh, I have one a writer has a big idea, yeah, an idea about the books, then maybe an idea for the protagonist, then a few scene fragments and a few dialogue fragments. So, so the, the inspiration for for a story they come in fragments, in little bits and pieces, uninvited, more or less. And I think after this first initial wave of inspirations is over, I think a writer should sit down and ask ask some very basic questions. Yeah, don't need to plot anything, don't need to go into any structural details, just ask important questions. Okay, what is my big idea? Uh, choose a genre, yeah? I mean, do you want to write a thriller or a romance? And then what is, who is the character? You know, what is the best POV for this character? And just answer like 10 very basic questions and then go and then write. Write your first draft. And when the first draft is there, okay, now I look deeper into story outline and maybe deep characterization and world building and, and things like that. So it's like a mixed approach I would suggest for writers. I, oh, I was just going to ask, you said you've written a lot of fiction yourself. 
mm-hmm. and then you'd gone back and readdressed that. Could you talk a little bit about that, like what fiction you wrote, and then once you discovered more of this craft, how difficult it was to go back and rewrite what you'd already produced? Yeah, um, there's one good example. Uh, one of the early uh, books I wrote was a, a novel, novel, a novelette. Was a novelette, a, a short novel, um, which I wrote with the Enlightenment uh, purpose in mind. So that's a, a visionary fiction genre, a fiction with an Enlightenment dimension. That's called visionary fiction. So I wrote this story as a vision in a visionary fiction genre, and so I in that story I highlighted all the important things, uh, Enlightenment things in that story, and um, but I, this, this, the book didn't sell. And I actually already gave up on it. But uh, at one point when I studied some uh, uh, book marketing, uh, I took some book marketing courses, I realized that I could actually revive that book by first changing the genre. And then, of course, after changing the genre, I have to, of course, also rewrite it. So I wanted to, I changed it from visionary fiction to fantasy. Uh, in this case, it was heroic medieval uh, fantasy, and of course, fantasy has different conventions. Yeah, for example, you need uh, battle scenes and you need some magic in there. So I also had to add uh, new scenes to the book, and then I had to re- uh, and I changed the theme also from enlightenment to um, unconditional honor. So the theme of the book is is a man who lost his he- uh, life in a bat, and he was given one more year to live. But then he has to go and, you know, get his head chopped off. And so it's the question, who would go to his execution free willingly? But this guy did. And and I had to really go very deep into the character and to reveal a character that is actually able to um, execute uh, unconditional honor. He said, okay, I'd rather die than uh, I break my promise. Now, so I had to rewrite a lot of small things here and there uh, um, in order to reveal this new theme about honor rather than reveal the enlightenment theme. So I think I rewrote like 30, 40% of, of the book. That's really interesting. It reminds me of Richard Bach. Are you familiar with him? He wrote that mm-hmm. book by, oh, it's the same sort of thing. It's like fictional stories that have tales of enlightenment. But Craig, I cut you off. It sounds like you were going to say something. Richard Bach, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I, I I was just gonna say it's almost like uh, you almost wrote a, a whole different book there on the second round <laughs> on the second round, right? Like you're changing the theme, you rewrote thirty to forty percent. I mean, it's a daunting task, but I think it's important, um, you know, that authors recognize when something isn't working, um, especially if you can figure out why it isn't working. You know, uh, some people will walk away from the book and just write something else, but you know, you put a lot of time and effort into that story, and if you've if you have a good idea of why it's not working you know you've improved as a writer and as a person since you wrote it um there's no reason why you can't go back and and fix all those problems even if it is 30 or 40 percent uh to rewrite it that's uh 70 60 or 70 percent that you didn't have to do right so you know it's 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 better than starting from scratch sometimes so uh -hmm. did the did the rewrite improve the the sales of the book and I haven't launched the, the rewrite yet. Uh, I also um, uh, worked with this uh, on this book with an editor <clears throat> because after writing the eight crafts of writing, I really wanted to put the prose on a 
level with which I can show off. So I had a good editor. Actually, it's Margie Lawson, who owns the uh, Lawson Writer Academy. And we went through the, the story line by line. Uh, and that was another process of three, four months after I've rewritten all the scenes uh, in order to put the prose on a, on a good level, like literary fiction <clears throat> level. Yeah. Right. So are you, um, are you working on, so for the writer, for the eight writing craft, right? I assume that that one is done or do you have any kind of follow-ups to that planned um, in terms of other sort of craft writing books? Yeah, that's uh, just the first book in a series. Uh, I already have an advanced reader copy of, of the next one, which details a, um, a, re a revision management process. So, uh, you know, uh, writing a story is uh, very, a very complex um, undertaking. And in the industry, yeah, if the, uh, an undertaking is complex, you, you, start, you start with the project management first. And there are certain uh, project management tools people use. And I used that in my previous life because, before I was a writer. And um, I now uh, created a revision management process, um, having all these um, project management tools and, and know-how in my head, which I had from my previous job. And then I lead people from step to step uh, how to uh, finish a VIP, something we talked about uh, just now. So you start collecting all your inspirations first, uh, and then you uh, ask your basic questions, and then go just write the first draft. Don't think about anything. Just put any, everything that's in your head on paper. And then when you have your first draft ready, Okay, what do you look at in the next draft? Okay, you look at the big idea in the next draft. And then in the next draft, you, you look at the narrative in detail. Yeah, is the narrative that I chose first, is it really working? Or maybe I need to go from limited POV to deep POV, yeah, things like that, and so on and so on. So I give around, uh, I forget the number, 18, 20 uh, draft phases uh, for authors to go through. Of course, they can skip if they want, but I, I just made it as detailed as possible. So you really do one step after um, another. And it's uh, also very important that we uh, separate uh, our self-editing from our writing. And that was something I had to overcome myself because if I took a draft and I reread it and I see a problem, I want to fix it right away. Yeah, it's very tempting, but you should not do that. You should just make a remark and you should just say what's wrong with it. If you know what's wrong with it, you just mark that down. Or if you don't know what's wrong with it, you put a question. Yeah, You ask it two or three questions in order to find out uh, yourself what's wrong with that paragraph or that phrase, and then you leave it. And then you go through the whole draft. And then you, when you revisit it, yeah, your subconsciousness already worked on the questions and everything in the meantime. And it's very easy to uh, correct with uh, these things or come up with uh, different options of how to write this. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it for a, from a project management perspective. Um, I know that, you know, there are tools out there that sort of like help with that, like Scrivener, for example, you know, that 
lets you break down the story in a lot of different ways, but it doesn't sort of, uh, you know, from my experience, and it's been a while since I used it, but it doesn't really give you the the information on on how to do that. Like it gives you the the tools, and I mean, there's some there's some uh, tutorials in there and stuff, but it sounds like that's a tool or tools like that that could be used alongside sort of the information that your that your next book would be about in terms of the project management side of it you you learn how to project manage it and then you use a tool like scrivener or or stuff yeah. to actually implement that right yeah yeah correct um, yeah. have you did you end up workshopping this at all on in your course or um you know you, the revision management yeah no, that's uh, I, I wrote a, a book about it, and AR is available as ARC copy. Uh, the next step is I turn it into a course, and after I gain experiences from the course, I want to finalize the book. So it's not available only as an ARC copy at the moment. Yeah. So you'll 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 do the course first, and then uh, yeah. use that to revise the book, figure out what works, what doesn't, and then. Uh, Revise yeah. book and then put it. That's it. That's, that's really. Yeah. I want to get always... the feedback first from the student how how good it works and maybe they have some some suggestion how to improve it. Yeah, it's almost like a beta 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 service yeah. uh, beta reading yeah. service and, and but you're able to to use it as a course help people out um, at the same time. That's great. Correct. It's uh, it almost sounds like you're taking your own advice in that with the the plotting everything out beforehand, even though it's a nonfiction book and a and of course. Yep. Yeah, these things work for me, and, and I hope they can also work for others. Yeah. So if there's anybody listening to, to this podcast right now, and maybe they've got a little niggling doubt in their minds, they're thinking like, oh, maybe he's onto something there. They've written their book. It hasn't had the impact or the resonance that they want. What is your advice for them to sort of the first thing they need to do? Um, yeah, I would look at the engagement of the book. So readers nowadays, they're spoiled and they want to be engaged uh, in many ways or on multiple levels. And if you have the picture of the eight crafts, it's very easy to find um, where the engaging engagement is uh, missing. So, for example, if you wrote an action story and you read your, your manuscript and you feel like it's not inspiring in any way. Yeah, it's a lot of action, a lot of thrill, but it's not inspiring. But I want it to be inspiring. So how do you add, add inspiration to a book? And if you know the eight crafts, it's very easy because you add inspiration through a big idea. Yeah, because the big idea inspires. What if an astronaut is stranded on Mars and needs to do the science and create the technology to survive in the most hostile of environments? That's inspiring. Yeah? Or if people overcome pride and prejudice, they can find love. That's inspiring. And you add that, and it's very easy, with uh, adding by adding a big idea. Yeah. And so you can look at each writing craft, and um, that's also in the book, and, and realize how the writing crafts engage readers in, in their own way. So, for example, the, uh, the root engager is uh, empathy. Yeah? If you don't have empathy, uh, the readers will neither be curious what's going to happen to the protagonist, nor will they get tense when the going gets rough. So empathy is the root engager, and you should create empathy 
as fast as possible in your opening to pull the reader into the story. But there is a, a secret to empathy uh, because empathy is character related, but that's only half of the story. Uh, you can have the nicest character and the most inspiring character, but if the character is not doing anything, there will be no empathy. Yeah, so, But as soon as uh, she gets mugged or she gets uh, into labor or somebody's coming for her, yeah, and as soon as something happens to her, empathy kicks in. Yeah. So uh, the character itself is the vehicle of the empathy, but uh, empathy is the experience in the story. Yeah, so, so character without experience, no empathy. And uh, experience in the story, but no character. Also, uh, the empathy is not that good because you don't have this vehicle with which the people identify themselves. And uh, uh, there's one more thing. Uh, to empathy, um, we can only empathize uh, with experiences we already had or similar experiences we already had. So, uh, for example, men cannot empathize with women in labor because they don't know how it feels. The only thing they can feel is sympathy yeah, for her strength to bear the pain or pity, uh, pity in a positive sense. Yeah, uh, But they cannot empathize with her. And same with veterans. Yeah, uh, we can only have sympathy and positive pity with veterans, but we cannot empathize with them because we were never in a situation where bullets were flying uh, past our head and shells exploding and our comrade bleeding to death beside us. We don't know how that feels. Uh, so we cannot really empathize with that. So if we want to pull a reader into a situation the reader is not really uh, equipped to empathize with or a person he's not really equipped to empathize with because the person is uh, a person he doesn't know like for example uh, a muslim or a hindu or a chinese person yeah the, the the writer needs to be very careful how he creates this empathy and i think one of the best examples how to do that is uh, lolita yeah, where the reader is being pulled into the uh, POV of a pedophile. Yeah, and the author does this very well, and the reader finds himself empathizing with a pedophile and, and thinking, oh, how on earth can I empathize with this guy? You know, but the writer does this with a very simple trick, uh, with the experience of infatuation. Yeah, we all... Uh, we are, we're all infatuated, so we can all relate to this infatuation experience and we can empathize with everybody who feels infatuated. And infatuation is good, except in the context of a pedophile or in the context of a stalker or something like that. So that's how you put readers into uh, strange situations where they're not really equipped to empathize with. You give them relatable experiences. Yeah, that, that's interesting. It's you know you it's um you've got to boil it down sort of into the uh, the baser instincts and and emotions and feelings to find sometimes that root that we can all latch onto because especially if you're writing in something like science fiction or fantasy, right? The the uh, the reader's not going to have any experience uh, with 
you know, being a knight fighting a dragon, right? But, you know, maybe that knight has his certain qualities that we can emphasize with, or the dragon is a mother protecting her young, and then that's something we could empathize with, right? It's it's mm. not the overall uh, action that's happening, but the baser emotions and feelings and experiences that we all share, yeah. Correct. I find it very interesting. You spoke earlier about how you hadn't found a book that encompassed all of these things, but there were books on dialogue and books on this. Like Empathy, there's a very, uh, very good book called Save the Cat, and it's about screenwriting. And it's how if you want to develop a character who people like and sympathize with, you have him save a cat in the first scene. And it seems like, yeah, what you've done with your book is got separate, really important elements and sort of uh, synthesized them into one place. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. That's funny. I've never, I've heard about that book a lot. I've never read it. And I've always wondered why uh, it was called that. And now you've just explained why. So that, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. You don't need, you don't need to buy the book now. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. You know, it, it's, it's, um, I think that's a, it's such a key thing though, because, uh, you know, a lot of the times we watch um, shows or read books or see movies where, um, you know, there's a villain and, uh, but the story is about the villain and we still end up empathizing with that villain. And, and by the end of it, we're like, why, like, why yeah. am I empathizing with this person? He's a bad guy, but, yeah. um, but somehow, you know, the writers have done their job and they've pulled you in. And, you know, I, I think of the, uh, the show, uh, the blacklist, um, James mm-hmm. Bader, you know, he's, he's a bad guy. He does a lot of bad things, but, you're not rooting against them you know, for the whole show. And, and yeah. you're always kind of questioning yourself. Shouldn't I be rooting against him? Right. Yeah. yeah the, the, the trick there is um, the experience of a father. Um, we all can relate to experience as a parent. And uh, we all can, because of that, we can relate to him because he really cares of his daughter. You know, he even will give his life for his daughter, it doesn't matter how many other bad things he does. And this experience as a father and this sacrificial uh, attitude towards children, we can all relate to. And that's what pulls us into, into being empathetic with uh, this guy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That is exactly what it is, for sure. And you used the really good example of Lolita, which is the main character is an yeah. absolutely despicable, repugnant person. Yeah. And yet it's written in a way in which you see him and sympathize with him as a human being and develop empathy with him. And then there's that weird thing, the obsession stuff. You start to have your own darkest elements validated by mm. that. It's a, it's a very seductive book that way. Yeah. Yeah. But it pulls you to a place um, because of the empathy, it pulls you into this, this character and you start rooting for him. It, you start asking, uh, like you said just now, you start asking yourself, some very hard and tough questions. You know, do I have something like that as well going on? You know, And that's why it's a book that has been, you know, remains relevant 70 years after it's written. Correct. Yeah, I think that there's, I mean, there's so, there's so many of those. And I, I think that's such a really important and, and powerful, um, you know, writing tool is the, is the, is that one of the, is that one of the eight crafts? No, it's uh, one of the engagers. 
So there are uh, eight crafts and there are uh, nine engagers. Uh, maybe I quickly uh, summarize them. So, so there is the uh, root engager, which is empathy, uh, which creates the two most important engagers after that, which is curiosity and tension. So you create curiosity by uh, uh, raising and answering story questions. And then you have uh, tension. Tension you create through adverse uh, experiences. Then you have inspiration and motivation, which you create through the big idea. Uh, then you have a, a sense of wonder and beauty, which you create through beautiful uh, world description or character descriptions. Yeah, that's what we usually think of when we, when we hear creative writing. And then there is uh, uh, emotional thrill, uh, which we convey through action beats. Uh, the actual action that happenings or sex beats or things like that. Then you have excitement, which is a positive emotion and that you usually feel the moment when the protagonist embarks on her adventure. Yeah, it's a very exciting moment, but you can always uh, sprinkle excitement all over your story by just giving, uh, uh, by adding uh, protagonistic impulses yeah, that support the, the protagonist. And then, then the mood of the story switches from tense to exciting. Yeah, because protagonistic uh, forces uh, dominate, and then you can switch it back to uh, attention. And then there's uh, satisfaction, and the big punch of satisfaction is delivered, of course, at the end of the story, after the climax or through the climax, yeah, when uh, poetic justice is established yeah, and when the story is concluded and the denouement of the scene. And um, <clears throat> last but not least, we have uh, feelings. And that's maybe also an, an important distinction I should make. So emotions, they, uh, the body conjures emotions like fear, uh, disgust, infatuation, or joy, things like that. And uh, the body usually does that as a reaction to external experiences. And the body does that involuntarily. So we cannot do anything about it. So if there is a huge object approaching very fast, yeah, the body conjures the feeling of fear. And we freeze and then we fight or we, or we run. Uh, there's nothing we can do about it. The feeling will come. We can only ignore it. That's all we can do. Uh, but feelings, and that's my enlightenment background, feelings come from the heart uh, or from the soul. That's something we bring into this world. And feelings, they're not many. There's love uh, in contrast to infatuation, which is uh, emotion. Uh, there's happiness in contrast to um, a joy, which is an emotion. And there's a sense of purpose, uh, that we have a purpose here uh, in this life. And, of course, a sense of beauty. So um, emotions are, uh, emotions sell. And that's why there are romances. That's why there are thrillers, which conjure fear. That's why there's horror, which conjures uh, disgust and fear. Uh, but uh, stories that move the heart, that conjure feelings, are among the best-selling books ever. Uh, for example, Titanic or Gone with the Wind or heroic stories like, like Hacksaw Ridge. And uh, it's very important, I believe, for a writer to know this difference between emotions and feelings. For example, uh, uh, if, for example if feelings override emotions, Heroes happen, yeah. Uh, and there's a there's a really great example. Uh, have you have, do you know a Better Call Saul, the Netflix series? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know. 
Okay, so you know the Saul, he's an ex-con man who turned into a, a, a lawyer who wants to be a respectable lawyer. And, and he has this internal paradox. Yeah? He's, he's cunning. Yeah, that's why he was a con man. <clears throat> Sorry. That's why he was a con man before. But now he, he in his feeling is he's very empathetic and a very agreeable uh, person. So in, in, in the first uh, few episodes of the first season, you can see this conflict at play. Now, he wants to be a respectable lawyer, but as a lawyer, you need to be a bit cunning in order to be successful. But his uh, empathy always comes in the way. So he ends up doing things for other people rather than for himself. So he keeps losing out yeah, all the time. And then around, I think it's in the middle of the first season, when he says, no, I really want to have my success, and now I'm going to be cunning. Yeah, so he talks these two young guys, the skateboarders, into cunning the wife of uh, a guy who did some embezzlement, and he really wanted to have as a client. I don't know if you remember that. And they end up uh, cunning the, the wrong woman. Yeah, they con end up conning the mother of a Mexican gangster. So the gangster rounds the three up and takes them to the desert. And then Saul, he's, uh, uh, he explains the mess up and says, yeah, I'm very sorry what happened, but uh, it was a mess up. We didn't plan to con her. And after some, he talked himself out of the situation and he gets to walk. But the other two guys, they insulted the gangster's mother and they got to stay. So you could, this was this uh, beautiful scene where he walks away Uh, uh, with his fresh one life, and he has all the reasons to walk away. It was not his fault. Yeah, uh, the, the, the other two guys, uh, it was the fault of the other two guys, and he didn't uh, insult anyone, so he has all the reasons to walk away. But then you can see him slowing down. You can see his face expression, you know, this, this fighting between cunning and empathy, and he stops, and he turns around and risks his fresh one life to talk the gangster out of killing the other two guys. And that's just beautiful to see how feelings can override emotions and bring out the hero in us. I yeah. love that. That's so yeah. powerful. Yeah, you know, that, that uh, better, call, uh, better Call Saul, yeah. Uh, it's a spinoff of Breaking Bad, you know, and both of those shows are just a masterclass in writing, you know, oh, yeah. and emotion and, uh, uh, you know, empathy, you know, both uh, in the, in Breaking Bad, you know, you've got the, 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 the high school student that becomes the meth dealer, but you're always, um, you're always rooting for him. You're always, you know, like he, yeah, he, because they built the story up so that you knew why he was doing what he was doing. Um, and he wasn't necessarily a bad guy. I mean, it's sort of, you know, later on in the series, he might have sort of crossed the line a little bit more, but you see that evolution. Um, and then it's interesting that they they spun it off. It's not a it's not a spinoff I ever would have expected. And and when they did it, I thought, you know, that's a that's an interesting choice to spin off this lawyer character that was a great character in, in Breaking Bad, but I, I never really thought of him as a as somebody that you'd want to build a show around. And then, um, you know, they, they did this exact thing that you're saying. They, they, they showed you this slimy lawyer, how he became that, you know, and all the, and, and, and his inner turmoil and his, his 
um, evolution to from the person he was to the person he became, and um, and again, it builds all this empathy and and uh, yeah, yep. it's a wonderful, wonderful um, story and characterization. Yeah, um, same with his brother. Uh, if you remember, his brother betrayed him, but he mm -hmm. still, you know, passes by his brother's house once in a while. Huh? He he can't just help himself to be empathetic yeah. and care. Yeah, I think um, we're running up to the top of the hour, so we have to wrap this up. But I mean, I love this podcast because I've got something out of it. I didn't I never really uh, realize the difference between feelings and emotions. And what, the way you explained that made so much sense. And what you said about when you have emotions like anger or jealousy or something like that, and your feelings like love or responsibility overcome those. That's what makes a hero. And I found that really valuable from a personal perspective. So I appreciate that. Okay, good. It's an enlightenment thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's a, there's a ton here to unpack and, and it just shows, uh, I think that um, there's probably a good reason for anyone listening at this point to, to buy your book, because uh, obviously we haven't even scratched the surface um, and just on what you've touched on, in this 45 minutes is so useful and, and powerful uh, for writers that, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that they'll get far, far more out of it if they read the entire book. I very quietly clicked the, the uh, Kindle Unlimited thing when, uh, when I saw it was on Kindle Unlimited to, to grab it. So I'll let everybody know what I think. Okay, so we are uh, running out of time, but thank you so much, Stefan. I have found this very enlightening. And so we, uh, it's been a great pleasure to have you on as a guest. Craig, do you have any final words? Uh, um, sorry. Uh, no, I uh, just, you know, like I said, I, I definitely recommend, you know, buying the book, if not taking the course. Um, and uh, I'm also going to uh, click to read that one because uh, <laughs> there's, I think there's just so much here that um, I want to know a lot more about. And I think that our, uh, our listeners will as well. It's funny, a couple of weeks ago, we had Erin Wright from Wide for the Win on, and she's very much about publishing wide. I have to admit, with a book like yours, the fact that it's in Kindle Unlimited, as a Kindle Unlimited subscriber, for me, that's just like click instantly. I didn't even <laughs> need to think about it. So there's some value in that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Stefan. This has been incredibly valuable, and hopefully uh, the readers and listeners and viewers will think the same. If so, drop us a comment down below. Let us know. Give Stefan uh, a shout out. Um, but in, in the meantime, we will drop a link to your website and to your, your book or whatever you need to in the description down below. Give us a, a like, give us a, uh, a comment, subscribe if you haven't done so already. And uh, yeah, we will be back very soon with another episode of Bully Books. And maybe we'll be lucky enough to have Stefan back again in the future. Thank you very much. <music>